Well, we made it. Thanks for joining us on Red Sunday. We appreciate that. I know some of you are uh, not Chiefs fans here today. I know there are some Broncos fans in the crowd, maybe some other teams. I uh, would like to invite you to watch on our overflow room down the hall if you'd like. Um, it's appropriately referred to as the cry room, um, but um, you're more than welcome to uh, join us from there. It's still church, right? <laughs> hey, we're glad you're here with us. If you're here in person, if you're, you're joining us online, we're glad that you are, are here. And I know everybody's excited for uh, 5 o'clock to, to roll around and kickoff's 5.30. But before we jump into it, just kind of wanted to share something with you a little bit. With it being Super Bowl Sunday, <clears throat> something that uh, Brad mentioned a few weeks ago, and something that I've kind of always stuck with, too, is that one thing that we don't do is we, is we don't, you know, pray for a certain team to win a game. You know, we don't pray for the Chiefs to win the game. Sometimes we pray for certain teams to lose a game, but we don't pray for teams to win a game. That said, however, uh, I was, was, you know, looking at something this weekend, something really stuck out to me. I will be the first to admit to you, I don't have the gift of prophecy. That's not a spiritual gift of mine. Uh, but some mentors and friends of mine do. And they were kind of showing me something the other day. And, and I was talking with one of, my, one of my mentors. And he said, he's a big Chiefs fan, uh, lives out on the West Coast. And he said, I was, was praying, God, I know, I know you don't care about the Super Bowl, but can you just give me a little insight here? And he said, as I was praying... He said, the wind blew and my Bible started to flutter and the pages opened and it came to 2 Samuel chapter 1. This is 2 Samuel chapter 1. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. And he reads this and he thinks, he thinks, now hang on a second. Who just beat the lions? Who's stronger than the lions? Well, we're not. They beat us earlier in the year and the 49ers beat them last week. And he's like, I was like, oh, no, no, like, this doesn't bode well. But he said, I read it again. They were swifter than the eagles <laughs> and stronger than the lions. And he said, suddenly it dawned on me. Maybe she is actually the secret behind all of this. And something started to jump out on this. Bear with me for just a minute. <laughs> My, as I said last week, I've been a lifelong diehard Chiefs fan for almost three years now. And um, <laughs> my daughter, my oldest daughter, Elsie, has been a lifelong Taylor Swift fan for less than that. Uh, in fact, I think she just learned who she was about a year and a half ago. But she has informed me that Taylor's favorite numbers, anybody know it? 13, right? Okay, this is weird, okay? Hear me out. What are we playing tonight? Super Bowl 58, right? What's 5 plus 8? It's 13, okay? What is today? February 11th, 2-11? What's 2 plus 11? It's 13. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm really glad I came to church this morning. <laughs> okay, just so you're aware, she made it. She made the flight from Tokyo. She's back in the States now. You know, praise Jesus. Yes, she made it, Okay. You know how long the flight is from Tokyo to Las Vegas? Give or take 13 hours. Okay? And if she makes it to the game today, it's her 13th Chiefs game to be at this year. Ooh. 
One more. Who are we playing tonight? The San Francisco what? 49ers. What's four plus nine? <laughs> it's 13. So maybe she has something to do with it. I don't know. But I was doing some reading, and I came across Job because I just wanted to feel bad about myself. And so I read the, the book of Job and all the depression and angst and everything that comes with that. And I'm reading this verse in Job. Again, God speaks to me and leads me to this verse. And what's this verse say? At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. And as I really focused on this and thought about this, look at the reference. It's Job what? 4-9. He's referring to the 49ers here. At his breath, they will perish. And I thought, God, this is silly. <laughs> because you don't care about a football game. You care about us, but not about a football game, right? And so I looked more and more about this and thought, okay, God, this is just... Something else has to make sense out of this. And I thought about the season. It's been a frustrating season for the Chiefs, you know, in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, Patrick Mahomes had to play the best season of his career because it's not the typical season where he's just been launching bombs down the field and, you know, guys running wide open and, you know, 50 points a game. He's had to shepherd his team a lot more than he has in the past, right? He's had to lead them. And what's a shepherd do? Sometimes has to grab his sheep by the neck and pull them to, to where they need to go. Sometimes push them where they need to go. Sometimes get out in front and they follow. Sometimes he has to yell at his sheep. He's really had to shepherd his team this year. And, and God spoke to me one more time, believe it or not, and, and laid on my heart one more verse. It came from 1 Peter chapter 5. And when I read this, it just stuck out with me. When the chief shepherd appears, like, there it is. You'll receive the crown of glory, and it will never fade away. So hear me out on this. I don't know if you bet on games or not. That's, that's your thing. I wouldn't take any of this as proper betting advice, though. <laughs> because one team will lose, and then they'll have to shake it off and move on into their offseason. And, and that's, that's all we'll talk about the Super Bowl, okay? So um, we actually are going to talk about the Bible. Don't get me wrong. So if you're visiting, you're like, what did I just walk into? Uh, that's normal, <laughs> you know, but, but no, it's exciting. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to have moved here when we did, when the Chiefs are playing well, because you just see the community come around and come together and rally around something like that. But before we go get ready for a game tonight, before we get ready to, whatever you're going to do, celebrate with friends or maybe you don't want to be around anybody, you're going to watch the game alone, whatever it may be, we're here to worship Jesus. And we're here to crack open and see what his word actually does say, not that it's just been picked apart for something silly like that. Because I think more than anything else, God doesn't care about football. He cares about us. He cares about you. And he cares about us becoming more like him. In John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking with uh, some followers of his. And he says this line that's a very famous line. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is a famous statement of Jesus. It's one of Jesus' three what we call purpose statements. Uh, the others are, I came to, to, to seek and save the lost. I came to serve others and not to be served. But this is also an important statement because it comes right between verses 9 and 11 in John chapter 10. 
And those are two of Jesus' I am statements, where he makes this declaration about himself, who I am, who I came to be, to fulfill all the expectations that you might possibly have. He says, I am the gate or the door for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. And right in between there, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In the Greek language, in the New Testament, there are three words that are used that are translated as life in your English translations. The first is the word bios, and that should be pretty self-explanatory. If you know science at all, what does bio mean? It means life. Often it means the study of physical life, and that's exactly what the Greek word bios means. It's the physical life that you have. It's what you can do with your body, with your hands, your feet, how you can walk, talk, do all of those things that we do in life. The second is the word suke. And if you saw it spelled out into the the transliterated English, you might understand what it means. It's spelled out P-S-U-C-H-E, and U and Y in Greek is interchangeable. And and so when we see suke, it's our internal life our mental life, our soul, our emotions. It's all those things on the inside. And you know you need both of those working well to have life working well, right? You need your physical body to work well, your mental and emotional body to work well. But there's another word that's used a few times in the New Testament as well too, and it's the one Jesus uses here. It's the word zoe. Z-O-E is how it looks in English. Zoe refers to new life, transformed life. Jesus says, I came to give them new, transformed life, and life abundantly. In the early church, they would have heard this because they viewed life already through the lens of eternity. They were already thinking about what came next. And when Jesus says, I came to give you not just Zoe, a transformed life, but abundant life, they're thinking something richer and fuller and greater than we have now. And this whole idea uh, of some translations will say life to the full or to the fullness. It's the idea that we get a taste of eternity. We get a glimpse of what our salvation means to us through Jesus. Dallas Willard was a, a, a philosopher and theologian. Just before he died several years ago, he said this, the prospering of God's cause on earth depends on his people thinking well. What he's referring to here is God's cause, which is what? What he came to do, what he sent us to do on our mission, seek and save the lost, serve others, bring life, make disciples, that depends, the success of that depends on how we think. How are we thinking? You get this because sometimes if your thinking is off a bit, it it affects everything else that you do. If your mind's off just a bit one day, maybe there's too much of something on your mind, maybe you're overwhelmed, maybe you're a little bit frustrated, maybe you're a little bit depressed, it kind of just almost puts a cap on you. And that's exactly what he's referring to here. God's cause succeeding depends upon his people thinking well. We've been in this book of Philippians now for the last several weeks. This this series called The Call to Cruciformity. And if you've missed any part of this, I would encourage you to get online and and watch the sermons. They're on our Facebook or YouTube page. Because as we've said several times, Paul says something to lead into something else. And that's exactly where we'll find ourselves today. But just to recap, if you've missed it, the, the idea of cruciformity, it's this phrase that was mentioned several years ago by a scholar studying Philippians. He says, cruciformity is to take on the form of the crucified one. In other words, it's to look like Jesus on the cross. It's to look like Jesus at his most humble, at his most broken, at, his, at him giving the most that he can possibly give. And as we look through Philippians, what have we seen? How does that look? 
How do we begin to look like that? Well, the crucified Jesus looks like somebody who values partnership. He values that community together around him. He values thinking about God first instead of about yourself and thinking about others more than yourself and humbling yourself so that you put others above you. Last week, we talked about the idea of taking your resume and throwing it away because who you are, according to the world, doesn't matter if you know God, if you know him personally. And as we look at this, this whole idea of Philippians, we've said there's a few themes that play out. One is a big theme of joy, but another one is this theme of selflessness. And in particular, this idea of breaking away from what you want the world to have for you to look at what God has for you so that it can benefit the kingdom and other people. A buddy of mine named Michael DeFazio is a professor at a Bible college. He teaches classes on Philippians and, and studies the letters of Paul. And he says, Philippians can be summed up in six words. Not me, but you, because God. Not me, but you, because God. Not me and what I want. Not my selfish desires. Not my ambitions. Not all the things that that I, I can claim and achieve and get on my own, but whatever I can do to serve you and serve others and elevate you and serve the kingdom because that's what God did and I'm trying to become more like him. Not me, but you, because God. We're going to be in Philippians 3 today. If you've got a Bible, if not, it's going to be up here on the screens. And what we're going to do is just look at this text, starting in verse 12 through the end of this chapter, and today, it's a little different because the text lends itself to this. We're just going to walk through the text, stop and talk about it as we do. But there's two themes that pop up here in this, this passage that are important for us as we walk with Jesus. And especially if you're here today visiting and you, you're new to this, you're new to church, you're new to Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian yet, maybe you just became one. I think these are important themes because these are about your walk with Jesus and what it means and what it looks like. Here's the first one. It's already up there. The first theme we're going to see is that walking with Jesus is a process of growth. Again, if you remember where we were last week, Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3 gave his resume. And he said in, in verses 3 through 6, basically, I am the Hebrew of Hebrews. I am the Jew's Jew. I, all the things that everybody does, I do better than you all. He, he shows off all of his accomplishments. And then he does a heel turn in verse 7 when he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the value of simply knowing Jesus is greater than all of those things that I could claim as my own. And that if I could, I would just die with him and remain, remain dead to the world because all I care about is Jesus. With that in mind, he gets into verse 12. And he says this, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect. Again, talking about wholeness or completion in Christ. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I, I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying that the Christian walk is about growth. Walking with Jesus is about growth. And to do this, he uses the imagery here of a race. Paul does this often. He uses athletic imagery, which is probably fitting for us today, given, given where we're at on our calendar. 
But he's talking about a race, and he's talking about finishing the race well. I've got some friends that are runners. I don't really know why, but they're runners. Makes no sense to me. If you see me running, there's probably a bear chasing me. So, you know, maybe get the bear spray out. But a lot of these that run, they're not concerned with winning. They're concerned with finishing. They're running half marathons or whole marathons or things like that. And their idea isn't just to finish, it's to finish well, to finish strong. That's our goal as we walk with Christ. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Most of us in our walk with Christ, we don't necessarily want to beat everybody else to the finish line. You know, like we're trying to live as long as we can live. That's why we, we do the things we do to prolong our earthly bodies. But we want to finish well. We want to finish strong. And that's what he's talking about here. But there's one catch you have to understand. You cannot finish strong if you never start the race. I don't know how many times I've had this idea of, of wanting to reach a certain goal, whether that's working out or, or starting something, you know, and, and, and having this end result. And I never actually even get it started. I can never even jump on board with it. You've got to start the race before you can finish it. But more than that, you also have to make sure you're running the right race. Again, what did Paul say last week? That race that all the Jewish people were running, I was winning that race. But then I realized I'm running the wrong race. I realized I'm on the wrong course. And he, he's gotten himself on the right course now. He's following Jesus, and he's trying to get the Philippian church to do the same thing here. He's trying to get them to run the same race and to look ahead at what's in front of them, not looking back at all the stuff that's back there. Why? Because sometimes when you glance back, you kind of want to turn and go back to that. Even if it wasn't good and you don't like it, I, I'm this way sometimes in life, the things that I have left behind, and there was a reason I left them behind, the further I get away from them, I kind of forget about some of the bad stuff and just remember the good stuff, and I'll see that go, oh, maybe I want to go try that again. No, Paul says don't look back. Look ahead. Look at what's in front of you. This is what repentance means. In, in Acts chapter 2, we, we see this, um, this story unfold where the, the church starts on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and Peter preaches this Great, amazing sermon, and, and hundreds and thousands of people are being baptized. And a couple of people walk up to Peter and go, this is awesome. We want this. What do we have to do? And he says in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized. The, the word repentance here in the Greek, it's the word metanoeo. Metanoeo is defined as to pivot, to do a 180, to change teams. Now, I can't imagine at halftime of the Super Bowl tonight, somebody would just change teams. But that's kind of what it is. It's I'm living this life for myself, doing what I want, but now I'm going to go do what God wants for me. Now I'm going to give all of that up and go over here and chase what God has for me. That's what it looks like to, to get rid of that, to run that race, to get on the correct course here. He goes on in verse 15. Verse 15, he says, Let those of us who are mature... Think this way, and if in anything you were, uh, or it, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. When Paul says mature here, understand he's not talking about what we would call mature or immature. You see somebody who makes wise decisions, maybe wise beyond their years, we'll say that person's mature. Somebody who makes decisions that don't kind of correlate with their age, that person is immature. No, when he's talking about maturity here, he's talking about the strength of your faith. 
those who have followed Jesus for a while, those who have kind of endured the things that life's going to throw at you, or what we would call mature in the faith. Those who are immature in the faith, it's not an insult. It just means maybe you're not quite strong enough. If something comes your way, you might not be able to endure it because you're still figuring out, you're still figuring out what, what God's all about and what this walk of growth is. That's where it's important for the church to be the church. I, we, we have this idea within the church that we, we kind of call like an engagement wheel or something of that, that nature. And that's kind of how we gauge what you're doing. You know, are you involved in a group? Are you serving? Are you giving? Are you attending? Are you reading your Bible? Are you doing those things that we need to do to help us grow? Because if you're doing all those, at some point, your next step is you come back around and you grab the hand of somebody who's new and you walk with them. You help them. When I was coaching, we would watch our kids that ran track. And we always had the kids that were really good at the distance uh, races. But you also kind of always stuck the kids who weren't necessarily really good on those distance races too. Because, you know, it's a longer race. They could run the whole mile or whatever it might be and just kind of fall behind and, and finish the race. And I was always touched when I would see one of the kids that finished in the top, you know, several places. But the race still goes on for a couple minutes. They would go encourage the people running that were still running. Go back and run it with them. Go back and help them. That's what we are called to do. And it just kind of crossed me this week because I stopped for the first time really and thought about my age and my stage of life that I'm in. I'm 41, and there's a lot of people in my life that I have looked up to. I mentioned them a few weeks ago that I still look up to, that still mean a lot to me, that, that are, are mentors to me. But it dawned on me, I'm actually at that age of the guys I started looking up to several years ago. That's how old they were then. That's me now. Who's looking up to me now? Who's potentially looking to me to be that mature one to help them walk their faith and, and get to where they need to go? And it brought me back, I said this a few weeks ago, but this statement that a, a former pastor of ours used to say, a guy named Gary Reed, he said, everybody needs a Timothy and everybody needs a Paul. If you don't know who Timothy and Paul are, Paul's the author of this letter of Philippians. Paul was, was an apostle who, who brought thousands and thousands of people to Christ. But Timothy was his protege. Timothy was a young church leader. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, who later on, Paul writes two letters to him just before Paul's put to death. They are part of our New Testament. He was somebody who wasn't quite as mature as Paul. Now, that said, Timothy was mature enough, people were following him. And when we look at this idea that everybody needs a Timothy and everybody needs a Paul, you ask yourselves two questions. Who am I following and who's following me? Who am I looking up to, but who's looking up to me? Because we said this again a few weeks ago, somebody's watching you. You may not know who it is. I learned more from people in churches that had no idea they were teaching me something, good or bad, because I just watched them. Who's watching you? That's what the church is all about. The church is not in existence just to be a social club. It's to help each other on our walks with Jesus and to bring other people so that they can start their walks with Jesus too. That's kind of the second thought we get out of this passage here. And hear me out on this because this may sound funny, but walking with Jesus makes you look weird, but not alone. Now hear me out on this because there's a lot of words you could put in place there of weird. You may say, what do I mean by that? I'm going to say something, but I want you to hear me out before you decide it's the wrong thing here. 
Last week we talked about the idea that whatever our resumes are, whatever our claims are, why do we make those? Is it to impress other people? Is it to look important? Or is it for maybe your own validation? I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say there's a wrong answer or that you should be judged for whatever your answer is. I, I'm just saying at some point, we have to realize none of that matters. Following God matters. And, and so with that in mind, we have to ask a question at some point. If all of the stuff that makes us important is thrown away and it's just about God, we have to ask, is it still worth it to follow God? And we said that you know, the church is, is kind of no longer the majority team. The gospel's been removed as, as the center of our, of our world, of our society here. And so therefore, it's no longer socially advantageous to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. It's no longer socially advantageous to call yourself a Christian. Once upon a time, if you didn't call yourself one, that could make you an outcast. Now calling yourself one can make you an outcast. So you have to ask the question to yourself and answer that. Is it still worth it? Because here's the thing. If you, again, if you're new here, you're new to Jesus, you're new to all of this, at some point, if you identify yourself as a Christian, you're going to get labeled as something that may not sound very nice. Maybe it's something as simple like you're just old-fashioned or you're closed-minded or you're backward. Maybe it's a little harsher. You're bigoted. You're hateful. Something that isn't fair, isn't true, but they'll say it anyway. The last several years, there's been this phrase that has circled around, at least on social media. I don't know how much it's said, you know, in the real world, but at least through social media, which, do what you want with that. Every time there's a big hot-button topic that comes up that is about somebody's rights or is about potentially oppressing somebody else or this or that, the phrase that always comes up is, well, I'd rather be on the right side of history. That's the phrase that always comes up. And in some cases in our history, that's probably been a fair statement to make. I mean, slavery existed for a very, very long time. Women didn't have the right to vote for a very, very long time. And at some point, people would say, well, I was for this even before it was popular. I was for this being done away with before everybody else jumped on board. So I was on the right side of history. I didn't just get in line when I had to. Now it's being used for topics that go against Scripture. It's being used for topics that go against what, what we know is right or wrong. And here's the thing, when it comes to understanding the idea of being on the right side of history, is you have to be careful that that doesn't put you on the wrong side of the cross. Because when you do that, you're becoming just like the world. When I said being a Christian makes you look weird, what I mean is it makes you separate from society. It has to. It has to make you stand out from the culture around us here. So again, go back to what we asked earlier. Who are you following? Go back to the text here in verse 17. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is asking them to follow him. This isn't the first time or only time Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. I'm following Jesus. I'm trying to become more like him. Now you do that with me. That's what people are doing in our world. They're going to follow you whether you realize it or not. Who are you showing them? What are you, what are you walking as? Who, who are you representing to them? Because here's the truth. Some people will disagree with me on this, but I will, I'll die on this hill. We all follow someone. 
We all follow something. We all worship something. We all have faith in something. Even if you say, well, I don't, I don't have faith. Yeah, you have faith in the fact there's nothing worth having faith in. We all follow someone or something. Who are you following? What are you following? Now again, add the next layer to that. What if you're the one somebody else is following? What are you showing them? What are you giving them? Are you giving them an alternative to the world? Are you showing them the gospel of Jesus? Or are you showing them that Jesus is easy? You don't have to change anything. What are you showing them? See, here's a hard truth for us to understand, especially, especially if you're visiting, especially if you haven't made that decision yet or if you just did. A hard truth, I heard this and it kind of, kind of shook me. I had to think about it for a minute. Following Jesus may not always go well for you. Following Jesus might be the most difficult thing you do. Following Jesus might make you question, why am I following Jesus? You're sitting there going, man, that's great salesmanship, Kurt. Like you should go work at a car dealership. I'm, I'm looking for a car. Take this one. You'll regret it every day of your life. It's going to be very hard to drive. It's going to be very hard to get down the road. Obstacles will throw themselves in front of you. Great, how much does it cost? Everything you have. <laughs> Following Jesus may not go well for you. Here's why. The values of God don't always match the values of the kingdoms of this world. And we're going to see that more and more in the coming months. Yeah, the values of the kingdoms of this world, maybe they will align with God. But you know why? Because they've changed theirs to match God's. God's don't bend to match theirs. God's values don't change. God's, God's stances don't change. Scripture doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We do this. We just weave back and forth as a society. We line up with God when it's convenient, and we don't when we want what we want. And that's the problem that we run into too often. It is that, that we get this mindset and this idea of, well, you know what, if I'm over here with God, these people may not like me, they may not approve of me, because I'm not just like one of them. Can I let you in on a little secret? Jesus warned us this was coming. He told us this was coming. John chapter 15, he says it pretty bluntly, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. He doesn't say if the world is tired of tolerating you, if the world is frustrated with you, if the world kind of sort of dislikes what you're doing. No, he uses some strong verbiage here. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me First, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. If you did everything the world wanted you to, it would accept you. It would, it would take you. But he says, as it is, you do not belong to this world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Understand with Jesus here. At his peak, he had thousands and thousands and thousands of followers. I mean, tens of thousands of followers from what we can tell in Scripture. And by the time he gets to the cross... First off, his teaching changed, and he started telling them what it was going to cost them to follow him, and then the persecution came, and by the time he gets to the cross, out of those tens of thousands of people, you could count them on one hand who was there. One disciple, the others are hiding, or they've run off, or they've turned on him, and those other followers are nowhere to be found. His mom's there, 
couple of other women are there. That's it. And we think it should be any different for us. <laughs> we, we expect the world to just accept every wonderful, great thing about us. No, it's about what Jesus showed us. But following him is worth it. We go on into verse 18 here of Philippians 3. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of Christ. Their, their, end is the, uh, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. That's some pretty harsh, again, words. And the world is full of people like this. Now understand when he says the enemies of the cross of Christ, he's not talking about those people who are just openly hostile to Christianity. Those are out there, and Paul has plenty to say about that. And you maybe you know some or you've just seen them around. That's not who he's talking about. Those who would just openly defy the cross of Christ. I think, and this is, again, what a lot of biblical scholars think and a lot of theologians think, Paul is actually talking about those who call themselves Christians but don't live a life that's modeled after Jesus. That don't live a life that is taking on the form of, of the crucified one. That's who Paul is talking about. Those who might come to church, they might crack their Bible open every once in a while. They, they might even lead prayer at dinner every once in a while. But they're not actually really trying to become like Jesus. They're just doing what the world is doing. And they're saying, hey, this is what it's like to be a Christian. This is what it's like. And what that does here is that leads so many people astray. That's more likely to be damaging to the mission of Jesus than somebody who's just openly hostile. Why? Because you're showing people the way of Jesus is easy. That the road is easy and it's flat and smooth. And there's never any bumps or bruises along the way. And if you've sincerely walked with Christ for any length of time, you know that's not true. You know that our, our, our winding path with Christ takes us in all sorts of directions, up hills, down through valleys, over rocks, through all sorts of things that could trip us. That's just our walk. That's, that's the world. But following Jesus, that's the road we take. And I think we need to be aware of something here. Because again, he's telling them that, that this is who's deceiving you. Those who say the gospel is easy. An easy gospel isn't the gospel at all, folks. He uses some imagery here. He says their God is their belly. What's that mean? It means their, their appetite takes them where their appetite wants to go. Imagine that maybe some of you, the first of the year, started a new diet plan or new workout plan, and you've got to eat pretty regimented food. If that's the case, good job. Great, great work on that. But let's say you're supposed to stay away from certain foods, and just, you know, every few days, you're like, you know what? I don't really care. I'm going to have a big cheeseburger today. I'm going to have a massive piece of cake today. Just going to go for it. And then you're like, man, I'm not hitting my goals. I wonder why. You're letting your belly dictate what you do. The same thing applies to our lives. We're called to live a disciplined life, to obey. So we can't just swing back and forth in and out of that as much as we want to. He also says in this passage that their glory is their shame. In other words, they're self-focused, they're self-righteous. Everything they do is about them. Go back to what we said last week. It's, here's my resume, look how great it is, look how important I am. And he says that they live and have their mindset on earthly things. Paul writes about this in Romans 1. He says that they were no longer worshiping the creator, they were worshiping the created things. 
This is what we do too. We have made mankind our God. We worship at the altar of humanity way too often, including people who call themselves Christians. And we have to push all of that aside and focus on him. He wraps it up, though, with a good reminder. Because if you feel like you truly are alone, following Jesus is hard, and it makes me look bad, and I become an outcast, and I feel truly alone. Look how he finishes out this chapter in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Man, I love this, this reminder. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, we belong while we're on this earth to certain nations or certain states or certain communities. And yes, there are things within all of those that we love, that we can, can grab a hold of, that we can enjoy. We get to go enjoy a Super Bowl later. Why? Because our team is in it. Because a team that we can, can grab and say, this is ours, is in it. And we do this at all different levels. When the Olympics roll around in a few weeks or a few months, it's, it's all, you know, USA, USA. We're cheering for who we belong to, right? Don't lose sight of the big picture. Who do we belong to? We belong to God. We belong to a kingdom that is here but not yet here. A kingdom that is eternal. A kingdom that is forevermore. A kingdom that Jesus described in John 18 as not of this world. That's where we belong. That's what I always put my hope in. You can look around you. You can look around the world right now, around our nation right now. And so many people, I hear this all the time, man, we're in trouble. Our nation's in trouble. We've got... You know what this year is. You know what 2024 is all about. About this big thing that's going to happen in a few months that's going to cause us to argue, cause us to fight, cause us to get divided, cause us to pick sides or to put hope and trust in people that we really shouldn't hope and trust. And every year I kind of do the same thing. I just step back and watch. And people will say, well, aren't you worried? I'm like, no. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. My hope and my trust isn't in people or places of this world. It's in an eternal creator. It's in a savior. And it's in a kingdom that's not of this world. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, on November 13th of this year, which is Wednesday after election day, I'm going to post on social media the same things I've posted every election cycle the day after election day. This verse out of the book of Psalms that we actually sang earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not on anything else. And because I, I believe that, I understand, I may have to stand out, I may become a bit of an outcast, but I am not alone. Because that's what the church is all about. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Folks, the church may at times seem unattractive. Maybe you've tried to get people to come and they don't want any part of it because there's this misconception of what we do or don't do or, or allow or don't allow or whatever it may be. I don't know. But the church may not seem attractive. And maybe we're partly to blame for that. I don't know. Maybe when you profess Christ, it gets you pushed away from people. I don't know what it is. But understand this. It's okay. Because in the grand scheme of things, we win. 
I don't know how tonight's game is going to turn out. No, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about that. But it does tell us what happens in the end of days. And I've read the last page. We win. We win when we get to the end. But in the meantime, it may be difficult. Can I give you some words of encouragement? From the pen of another disciple, another apostle, a guy named Peter. I don't have this one on the screen. Just, just listen and follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, here's what he has to say about this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. There's that word again from Philippians. Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If following Jesus is easy, can I just make a suggestion? You're probably not actually following him. You're following a created version of him. If following Jesus is difficult, you're probably doing it the right way. No matter what the world says, no matter what this, this year holds, what somebody tries to convince you, you have to believe this or you have to do that, understand this. Being on the right side of history doesn't matter if you're on the wrong side of eternity. Stand with God. You may feel like you're standing alone. I can assure you that you are not because there are others with you. And find somebody you can look to if you don't have somebody already, I mean, put that on your connection card. Drop it in the boxes before you leave because we want to make sure you get connected with somebody that can help you. But as we wrap this thing up this morning, I just want to challenge you and go back to those two questions I asked you earlier. If we want to be the body of Christ and we want to make sure we are walking together, then question number one, who are you following? And question number two, who's following you? Who are you looking to? And who's looking up to you? Because whether you realize it or not, they're on number two, somebody is. What are you showing them? What are you getting from number one and what are you showing number two? I hope we're showing them Jesus. I hope we're showing them Jesus on the cross in everything that we do. Because that's ultimately what matters the most. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for the example that he gives us, for the, the challenge that he gives us. We know following him isn't always easy. But God, we pray today that we would put our minds on him, that we would fixate on him and not on the things of this world, but God, that we would relentlessly pursue him, no matter how difficult it may be. God, I pray for those who might be struggling, feeling like they're losing everything. Give them the reassurance that it's worth it and help us to come alongside them to show them. No, days may not be easy all the time. There may be some days that are hard, but it's worth it to follow you. God, we're so grateful for your son, for the sacrifice that he made for us. And God, we pray that everybody would come to experience that grace that he has. We pray today in Jesus' name.